Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. This is really exciting to get to have another conversation with you. And I love all of these talks about infinite banking and being able to really just dig in and unpack some goodness for our listeners. So today, I don't have my physical copy with me. We actually decided to give that away. And I'm very excited about that. But I took pictures of all of the pages for the next episodes until we get a new one in the mail. So I would, um, I normally hold up the book and talk about how we're covering the next part of ground or the next territory in becoming your own banker. But I don't have the book. There you go, Bruce. Thank you. I knew you would have it. Um, So today we are in episode 14 of this series where we're covering Nelson Nash's groundbreaking book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And we have been unpacking this for many months even already, as you can tell, because we're on episode 14 of this. And today we are going to be talking about how to finance with infinite banking. And this is a great comparison that Nelson Nash puts forth in his book to really help you understand the idea of how to fund the premium, and then what the value of paying premiums into a life insurance policy and starting a banking system and using a banking philosophy and banking practices in your life using infinite banking is in comparison to just financing another way. And he says, you know, we could start with a big topic like a mortgage, but that would be so challenging to change your entire lifestyle to be able to make those kind of shifts. And so he talks about financing cars. And so we are going to walk through that example today and help you understand the different methods. There's actually five different ways that you can purchase something. And we're going to compare and contrast and walk through his example and just talk about why it is so advantageous to use infinite banking. And it's not just advantageous by a little bit, Bruce, when we really unpack this. It's like you can have a negative a negative uh, expense. You can have a little bit less negative expense. You can have a little bit less negative expense. You expense. You can have a little bit of a improvement in a gain, or you can have a gigantic improvement with a gain using infinite banking. And so we're going to unpack exactly what that means and how it connects to your life and how it can help you with your finances. So Bruce, thanks for joining me for this conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts before we dive in. Yeah, I think um, you know I talked to. Uh, people on a weekly basis that either their clients or their potential clients. And it's funny, I get different reactions. Um, I get people say, you know, I don't, it really isn't important to me about the amount of money that I save on financing my cars. That's not important. I usually hear that from very successful people who, you know, they don't worry about, you know, a few hundred dollars or even a few thousand dollars here or there. They, they want to know, you know, what they can do to enhance their overall net worth. And so I think that really does talk about the human condition. And, you know, Nelson, Nelson said at the end of the last chapter that um, you really need to understand the pitfalls of the, of the human behavior. And this is another thing that I've, I've run into over my, 
oh, third, 14 years of being with the Nelson National Institute um, that people were like, you know, that book, it's kind of like folksy and it's got some like little witticisms in it. It talks about, but I want to know, I want to know about the numbers, you know, and, and I'm like, that's the problem. It's not by the numbers. What Nelson is trying to tell you is your human condition is really what is getting you into trouble. It's the not delaying gratification, wanting it now. That is what is getting the American people in trouble. And on page 17, he talks about the average financing volume of uh, the American people is 35% of their income. And when you start looking at it like that as a volume, like, so you bring in $10,000, 35% of that is actually going towards interest payments to another party, not to you. And so now all of a sudden, the higher net worth people that aren't worried about $100 here, $100 there, or even $1,000, they, they can actually start understanding all. Now I understand that it is about taking the banking function into my life because the banking function is actually very significant when I consider it for my entire life. Now, you mentioned that Nelson said that, uh, you know, let's not even talk about this for a mortgage right away because um, that's kind of a, a radical change in your life. And Nelson mm -hmm. himself, Nelson himself did not even get the bank out of his life with his mortgage until age 67. So don't be frustrated if you're like, I, I don't have all the banks out of my life yet. Um, so this is a way of life. I wrote this down is uh, IBC is a way of life. It's not something that you're just going to try. And here's the one of the, the last thing, and then we can get started on this chapter is you need to rethink your thinking. And that's one of the tenets of, of what Nelson taught about IBC. And what do I mean by rethink your thinking? You have to say to yourself, well, okay, I'm storing capital somewhere. Because people cannot understand that all this is is storing capital in a more advantageous position. You're already using a bank to store capital. It's, it's funny how people can't see the difference between storing capital in a bank or storing capital at a mutual life insurance company. And the final thing is, is that they're already good savers, or they wouldn't store that capital there. So... They're already long-term thinkers. So why do they have to turn their, their long-term thinking from a bank into short-term thinking in an insurance company? Because, oh, I got to worry about what my liquidity is the first year. Oh, I got to worry about uh, how long is it going to take me to build this up enough to buy that truck? I had a guy just the other day, you know, he was listening to another um, YouTube channel, and they were talking about how, you know, you're borrowing against your death benefit. Your death benefit goes down by how much you borrow. That's only partially true. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, so he's thinking, okay, I put six thousand dollars in this year. My death benefit is two hundred thousand. I can borrow seventy thousand against my death benefit, and I can go buy the truck, even though he only put six thousand dollars in. It, it is crazy, but this kind of stuff is out there on the internet. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they're incompetent people or mm -hmm. 
what the true definition of ignorance is, not knowing, but both of them are harmful. So remember, this is about human condition and changing your human condition. And that is more important than the numbers. Bruce, I'm glad that you said that the process and changing your way of thinking is more important than the numbers. And especially as we come into this particular chapter, because if you're reading along in Nelson Nash's book, you could say, well, this particular chapter is confusing or is archaic or it's outdated because the numbers don't make sense in today's environment anymore. And that is not the point. The point is that you purchase vehicles and maybe you don't purchase vehicles for the same amount that we're going to talk about today. And maybe the life insurance dividends aren't the same exact amount that they were when this particular illustration was laid out for this chapter. But what's really important to realize is that it is not about the numbers. It really is about understanding the process, as you said, Bruce. And I'm actually going to jump to um, a point that Nelson makes towards the end of this particular chapter before we dive in, because I think it was really critical. As you look at the whole concept of infinite banking, you have to understand the characters. He brings up Shakespeare and Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage Um, Let me make sure I have a quote correct here. And I'm losing all the world's a stage and all the people are actors thereon. And when you think about that, he said, the problem is that most people don't understand the play and then they can't get the characters straight either. And so he talks about what the value of the characters are in banking, regular banking with a banking institution or a financing institution versus the life insurance company. And I will tell you this, you have um, many characters are the same. The administrators are the same on both sides. They're both going to be have to be paid salaries. Both people are going to earn interest. If you are putting your money in and storing it in the bank, you're going to earn interest. You are the depositor in that case. If you are a life insurance policyholder, we'll call you a policyholder, but you're essentially the same person. You are the customer in that position. You're putting your money into that institution. You're earning interest. The difference is who gets dividends. Over here in the banking system, you put your money into the bank, you earn interest, but the um, stockholders of the bank are the ones who are getting paid dividends. So when the bank is successful, they get paid dividends. When you're in a life insurance policy, you are the owner of that policy and you are essentially then also the owner of the company. You are an owner along with all the other policy owners. You are an owner of the company when you're working with a mutual company. And when that company is profitable, you get paid dividends. And the dividends make all the difference in the world. And that really is the ability to accelerate this growth inside of a life insurance policy because you're a part owner. And that's why it's beneficial to understand the nature of banking, not just say, well, I'm putting money into a life insurance policy. I have cash value today. I'll figure it out in the future. The Really, the compelling reason to do life insurance is not for what it can do for you today. If it was a magic ball that we said, let's put your money in today and tomorrow you are going to have a million dollars. Well, that's not the reason to put money in life in a life insurance policy. The compelling reason to put money into a life insurance policy is realizing the end game at the end of the rainbow, at the end of this whole process, that it puts you so much further ahead because you get paid dividends and those dividends compound and grow tremendously higher because you're a part owner. And so taking that ownership of the banking function allows you then to reap the benefits of being the banker, which the banker has to capitalize. The banker has to set up the banking system in the first place. And over here, if you're working with a regular institution, you don't see all that. 
They've put up the capital. They've built the system. They're the ones that are going to profit when it finally becomes profitable. And they go through that period of time to be able to recoup their expenses and finally gain profitability. Well, when you become the owner of the banking system, then you are the one who's capitalizing and you're going through all of that grueling toil to be able to start up the policy. You are the one who's then going to reap the rewards of profitability at the end. And so that really is the, the, I guess, um, the spoiler alert for, for why you want to do infinite banking. So let's go ahead and start talking through, um, this example that Nelson lays out, I'm going to just set the stage and then Bruce, I'm going to let you dig in a little bit here. So basically what he said is if you're going to fund a policy, you've got to get the capital from somewhere. And if you think about just additional cash flow that's sitting around, you need to store somewhere, you can do that with a life insurance policy. But also if you want to recapture that banking function so that you are not putting money into the banking system and paying for the cost of that capital. And instead you are turning that money around in a position where you are earning the rewards of being the banker. Then you want to think about it from a financing perspective. So let's think about it from financing and compare five different ways to finance the purchase of a vehicle. So he sets up an example and he says, we are going to have a car purchased every four years, the car is going to cost $10,550. Now, don't turn us off here. Yes, we know cars cost more than that, especially if you're buying a new car today. Any new car is going to cost more than that. However, the concept is what's important here. So that's the number that he used for the example. He financed that at 8.5% interest for 48 months. So that is a four-year loan that has been then being repaid. And what he realizes then is at the end of those four years, most people are then going to go out and purchase another car. So he has you buying a $10,550 car every four years, financing it over the course of 48 months with amortizing interest of 8.5%. And then as soon as that's paid off, that loan is paid off, you are buying another car. And he walks this example out over 44 years, which 44 divided by four years for financing each car is 11 cars financed if you're starting at the beginning over this period of time. And the five ways of paying are one, leasing, second, bank financing, third, paying with cash. Then he uses a very complicated example, but using a CD and um, a CD for banking purposes. And then fifth, he uses whole life insurance with infinite banking. So Bruce, I'm going to let you um, jump in right there and share what you'd like, and I'll pick it up when you are ready. Yeah, if anybody ever saw Nelson's uh, two-day seminar, if you saw it, if you ever saw it live, it would have. I've saw it several times live. Um, the man had a really interesting delivery that was both serious and um, dry-witted humor along the way. And so, when and when he talked about this particular thing, he would say, "Now, Mary, Mary was his wife, uh, Mary." gets a car every four years, whether she wants it or not. And his, his uh, premise here was that not only are you purchasing the car, but you're also going to have some equity left in the car or some value left in the car after four years. Nelson felt like that was the sweet spot of cars that they hadn't depreciated too much. The depreciation had slowed down, and he felt like that was the best time then to trade the car in and then start the process over again. 
So that's why he says every four years because of his own wife, Mary, um, getting a car every four years. Um, Nelson also, yeah, Nelson also in his two day seminar would describe the definition of a bank because he did not like the fact that insurance companies were all bent out of shape because he said the infinite banking concept to be used with a dividend paying whole life insurance policy. And he tried to convince them it doesn't matter because I can show you how you could set up your own bank with a CD or with just having cash. And his example would be that, you know, when you're on a river, there is a bank on the river. He was a pilot. So when he would turn, he would say, I would bank the plane. He said, I would give blood to the Red Cross. I would go to a blood bank. He's, he was um, not happy with the insurance lawyers and said, and said to them, so the word means nothing. It's the action. It's the banking action. It has nothing to do with the insurance policy. And he would get really irritated. It, it may be the time he got the most irritated because he could not understand how the lawyers of the, of the insurance companies that were pushing back on him when he was saying, hey, we're going to help you get more capital with this method. So as we go through these five different methods, remember that there are, these are ways that you can purchase and, a, and most of them are a way that you're, you're setting up a banking institution, just that one of them has the greatest benefits of that banking institution. So the first method that he talks about is, as he talks about method A, is the most expensive in his mind. And he does say it's, it's very difficult to calculate this for a variety of reasons, and it's not in the book, but he, he actually talks about, you know, it is true when you lease that uh, you can buy more car than you could if you were to not lease uh, and pay the same amount. And the reason for that is you're building no equity in this mm -hmm. situation. When you so trade it in and you get a new car, there's absolutely nothing that you have to show for it. You don't get any sale price of any kind you've been renting the car for if you will from the owner the entire time and that's why he says it's it's hard to calculate but it has to be the most expensive way to purchase and he was also uh disenchanted because leasing at the time he wrote this book he said leasing was up and i'm telling you i bet you leasing and i don't have the figures on this, but just from, from talking to a couple of my uh, friends that have car dealerships, I bet leasing is approaching 50% of the purchases right now. See, that's and baffling to me. That's yeah. Well, I, I believe it's for because of the human condition. I think isn't there's it a couple also true. Go ahead. I have a question for you about no, no, leasing. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. So isn't it true that you get a business deduction if your business is leasing a vehicle? Well, you can. Yes, but you have to prove it's, you know, only for the part that you're using for business. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. That makes sense. Right. But you would, yeah, but you would also get it on a purchase. And actually in today's environment, purchasing, purchasing a vehicle might actually be better than leasing because you can get something called bonus depreciation section 179 of the tax code if it's heavy enough. So a lot of construction companies and 
people that need you know bigger vehicles, they actually would purchase them instead of leasing them. There so are some when reasons. You purchase, you're getting the deduction, but you're also getting bonus depreciation, which is probably more tax advantage than just leasing. But I think I've heard that argument for why lease a vehicle because it's a tax write-off if it's through the business and it's for business purposes, but it's not necessarily going to be more advantageous tax-wise than purchasing. Right. But you, but if you, yes, that is true, but you also get deductions for the interest that you pay if you're paying to own the vehicle mm-hmm. also. And you also can um, deduct the miles just like you could with leasing. So, I mean, there's, you have to look at it, but a lot of people believe that the easiest way to keep track of the, excuse me, the tax, the tax benefits is from leasing. Cause you just say, Hey, I'm, I'm having my, my LLC pay the leasing price of it. So, yeah, I think frankly, that's just a way that people justify in their minds so they can buy a new vehicle. Mm-hmm. And that's the human condition. Cause I see it with clients. I see it with relatives. I've never leased a vehicle because I believe this even before Nelson pointed it out, that it's the most expensive way. And there's also, <clears throat> there's also hidden costs. Now, this is this uh, particular <clears throat> podcast is called The Money Advantage. It's not the IBC I'm podcast. I'm going to pause really quick, and I just want to let everyone know that my son, Eli, is going to be participating in the podcast a little bit today. So I may be on and off camera for a second. He needs to eat. So um, we have a little different circumstance. So you go ahead, Bruce. I'm still here, though. Yeah. And so uh, the the uh, leasing method is most expensive because somebody else has to actually make a profit in this situation. And that profit is a lot greater because they don't have to give up the equity. So that's the first method. The second method is using a commercial bank or a finance uh, company to do the job of calculating. In this example, Nelson uses $260 per month for 528 months. That's the 11 uh, years plus, uh, and it costs $137,280 at the end of the four-year period. Uh, I'm sorry, at the end of the four-year period, this person has a four-year car to use as a trade-in for the next time. Reason tells you is that the first method must be more costly. We already talked about this because you have no equity left in that. Hey, Bruce, Therefore, I wanted to yeah. share something here as well. What I love about these five examples that he does is that he makes sure that he only changes one factor with each of the examples. It's a true apples to apples comparison, except the method is different. And so that's why the cost of the vehicle is the same. The interest is the same. The the time frame that he's purchasing cars over is the same as well. And uh, if you're walking along in the book, I always like to verify the math independently for myself so that I can make sure that I understand fully. And so when he talks about financing, he says that your monthly payment is going to be $260. And so you can go over to calculator.net. You can walk this out. You can put in a loan amount of $10,550, a loan term of four years, the interest rate of 8.5. And then you can compound your interest monthly and pay back every month. And that comes up with a monthly payment of $260 per month, which then over the cost of the total 44 years, meaning I pay this $260 monthly payment for four years. And as soon as I have finished making that payment, I then go buy another car and I still have the same monthly payment. 
So I'm going to make that same payment every single month, which is 528 months over the 44 year span of time, which then is what equals that 137,280. Yes, correct. Um, it's, it's always nice to verify uh, this. And obviously this book's been around for almost 25 years. And a lot of people have verified this. And what I mean is not only people that wrote the book and helped him edit it, but other people that were checking it just like we do. So these numbers are very, very tight. And um, I think you, you should feel confident that uh, everything in this book is, has, was well-researched and, and well-verified um, uh, by a, a variety of people. The third method is to pay cash for every uh, vehicle. And, and Nelson actually talked about this might be the most, the hardest thing for people to understand that paying cash actually costs you. And um, there's several reasons for that, but he says the, the, this result is a total of $116,050. And once again, you're going to have $10,550 for each trade in you, you make. The person that pays cash has to defer the use of the first new car for four years to achieve the results. So that is why it is actually better than the first two methods, because the first two methods, the person doesn't have to, well, when I say better, what I mean is um, you're actually not paying the interest along the way, way um, because you're earning interest for the first four years. So that's going to be better because it's a little bit less of an expense. I mean, so if you look at, there's a chart that he shows in the book that the first leasing method is the greatest expense. So you're going most below the zero equity line. Sorry for the um, yes. baby sound here. Um, and then if you're financing a car, there's a little bit less cost, but it's still a cost. Paying cash is a little less cost, but still a cost. And something that's really important to mention here with the cash is that you have to defer the use of the car for the first four years. So when you're starting to first put payments into a savings account to build up enough cash to be able to buy the car, you don't get to use and enjoy the car the very first year. You're deferring the use of that car four years. But then once that car is purchased, imagine you're building up a savings account by putting money in every month. As soon as the cash is of a volume that's high enough to be able to make the purchase, you're draining the account then. And so as then you need to start saving up for the next car that you're going to purchase in four more years. So it's basically, you're still having car payments. You're just putting it into a savings account or it's a typical sinking fund type of method. Yes. And the point, the point uh, that you should understand on this particular method is that it does offset some of the financing costs because you are actually earning interest on your savings accounts uh, before you actually deploy it. So that's going to, that's going to um, de defray a little bit of the cost that you could have earned on the money um, if you were able to keep it in the bank. So you drain it though. You, you earn it for four years, then you drain it. And then as Rachel said, you start the process over again by accumulating money, a car payment every month into your savings type accounts at the bank. And there, and you know, the big difference, the big difference now in this method is actually poorer in depiction today than it is in the book. 
because when Nelson did this in 2000 and in 2000 and his book was written first time in 2000, the interest you could make at a bank for savings. Now I know there's high yield savings right now and there's CDs and so on and so forth that are similar, but a regular savings account at a bank is paying considerably less than it did in the year 2000. Why? Because banks have realized that they don't have to compete for your money as much as they used to because they, the Federal Reserve has the, they have the ability from their federal, to get money from the Federal Reserve. And they found out even as interest rates went to zero, people were still keeping the money in the bank. So they didn't have to pay them. So now, yes, there's a little competition now between banks on Main Street. Bring your money over here. We'll give you this. But they don't have to compete like they used to. So this cash method that offsets by the amount of interest you're earning at the bank, some of the financing costs actually is even worse in today's environment. Bruce, I'm glad that you shared that because it's important to recognize what's going on with the bank. And and, um, I almost called Nelson Bruce. Um, So you should find yourself flattered. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So towards the end of the chapter, he starts talking about the bank's financial statements, which is really important to understand because your deposit at the bank is is a liability to them. It's not their asset. It's a liability because they owe money back to you. They owe you that amount of cash and they also owe you interest when you store your money in the bank. Your The loans that they then extend, which are to us liabilities, if we're a customer of the bank, to the bank, the loan is an asset because it's their source of income. So I wanted to just notate that in regards to your cash deposit that is being held in a savings account at the bank is your asset, but it is the bank's liability. Yeah, we had some comments before we go forward. Um, yes. James, James is saying, for reference, I'm a client, have read Nelson's books. I'm glad you said that. Um, the Case for IBC and Warehouse of Wealth are very, very good books. Some people actually get the concept better reading those books than the original book. Mm-hmm. I can argue sometimes that's because they re- they read the original Becoming Your Own Banker, and it was almost like they saw it in a different life once they read the other books. Um, and then the interested spectator says he agrees with Nelson's wittiness. I have been reading his book and the ideas that he conveyed on our education on a very entertaining delivery. Love, love the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for, yeah, thank uh, you. and tell us where you're from and what your name is. Um, I, I do like the interest uh, spectator moniker, but uh, we'd love to know your name and where you're from. Um <clears throat> What's interesting, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up, interested, interesting spectator or interested spectator, because I said this at the very beginning, and Rachel and I always hesitate to bring in numbers because Nelson hesitated to bring in numbers. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, people think that's weird because there's a bunch of numbers in this book. And Nelson said on many occasions, now he was in his 80s when this really took off. Okay, so he was like, I wish I would have never put numbers in the book, or at least as many diagrams and charts and things. He he said, because people start majoring in the minors, and it's not about interest rates. And he and we're actually talking about interest rates now. And what he meant was, is that 
it's it's about an ever expanding pool of capital. That is what you're actually trying to do. And you're while you're doing that, if you can borrow against that ever expanding pool of capital, you're not interrupting what that pool of capital can do for you. So this is a really good segment transition from this cash method, because every time you do this, you're interrupting the compounding effect from this pool of capital. And Nelson kept emphasizing that. And sometimes people have an aha moment. You know, they, they say, oh, I get it. It's not about how much I'm earning at the bank. It's not how much I'm earning at the insurance company. It's not how much I am getting in dividends. None of that is important. What is important is, is that I can eliminate the bank and whatever money they're making there, and I can start recapturing, even if it's a little bit of what they're making, and I'm better off in that situation. Bruce, so I think what's you, so- All you analytical people, all you analytical people, just think about it in those terms and stop thinking about it in terms of numbers. I think the value of having numbers at all, to be honest, I'm not a numbers person. Um, if you've ever heard me accidentally say 5,000 when I meant 5 million, that you know I'm not a numbers person. But the idea of numbers is that math proves a concept and you can see concepts more clearly sometimes when you have numbers. I would argue that when the numbers are turned, turned into charts and graphs, for me, that's even more valuable. We all dismiss the value of uninterrupted compounding because we almost never get it for a lifetime. There's almost no place where you can put your cash and truly have uninterrupted compound growth. If you put it in the stock market, you have ups and downs and ups and downs. You don't get the average rate of return every single year going forward. You don't always leave your money invested. And because there's losses, you're not getting uninterrupted compounding growth. Most people who use a savings account and value saving as soon as you take out the savings, you're interrupting the compounding. And so we don't even understand the value of holding something for 50 or 100 years and not interrupting the compound growth. And people would say, well, why would I store my money somewhere and never, ever use it? Well, that's because our mind thinks the only way that we can access money is to use up the money that we've stored. But that's why banking is so valuable, because we can store up the capital, continue that uninterrupted compound growth which we're going to show by the numbers in a second, why it's so valuable and continue to use the capital along the way. And that is where I first had the epiphany realizing that it's not just about storing cash. It's not just about using cash. You can literally do both at the same time and reap the benefits. Just so that no one thinks that I'm lying. I'm going to just show you. Well, here's the baby. There you go. (laughs) I really doubt if people think you're lying, Rachel. Now we'll have to see if I can actually reattach my camera. I might have to go off screen so I can do it. All right, go ahead, Bruce. Okay, so um, to finish up to finish up the uh, cash method, uh, Nelson said this me- method involves car payments just like the first two methods. And people don't realize that. They think, oh, well, if I'm going to make cash, I-, I don't have a car payment. It is all a matter of where these payments are made. Are you making it to the leasing company, the commercial bank, or in this case, the cash method, to your savings account? This and this is what he's called a classic sinking fund method of financing ongoing needs. And what he means by sinking fund is that you're making these payments and they're growing, and then 
you're removing it from the bank and you stop the growth. Um, notice that there is not much difference between the three methods discussed so far. Also be aware that probably covers 90% of all the population in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I would say at least 90% of that. Uh, we have another comment. JJ says it's about the flow of money into your system and how you control the banking action. An ever-expanding pool of capital. So right about this, Bruce. And, you know, the only reason I'm right about this is I, I heard Nelson pounded into my head um, because I could not get enough of Nelson. Um, he was he was so wise in his conceptual approach to thing, but but so intelligent that he could put some numbers to things. And he was he was a it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because is because I am trying to keep his legacy alive. So let's talk about the fourth method. And he says the fourth method does need some explanation. The first three method, methods ha, uh, have not have not addressed the need for capitalization. A pool of money must be accumulated before using it for your own car purchases. Um, it must be large enough to accommodate the needs of other folks too. And he says, several years ago, a Dartmouth business professor, uh, James Bryan Quinn, estimated that corporations expect to take at least seven years to get profit back on their new investments. Taking a clue from this fact, why not accum accumulate money over a seven-year period of time? So the second thing is you're thinking like a bank. So a bank is a business. He also mentions that bank people discount the fact that banks have to capitalize over a certain period before they have enough money to even start a bank mm -hmm. and they have to obtain a bank charter. I think I've, I've talked about this before is that I have a friend who actually was a, a mortgage broker and in order for him to easily do mortgages in other states, he has to actually have a bank because I don't understand all the details, so nobody can call me out on this. I'm not claiming to be an expert. But he said that a mortgage company actually has to have a presence in each, a physical presence in each state where a bank can actually do mortgages in other states without having a physical presence oh, in that particular state. Yeah. And so he decided he needed to have a bank. So he gathered investors. I believe the amount of money was $20 million. Then he had to put it into escrow and he had to apply for a bank charter. And I think it took close to 10 years for him to get the bank charter. So that was people discount that being part of the banking system. Well, if they have to do that and you're trying to mimic the bank, then you need to understand the value of capitalizing your own system. We are losing that think long range in the IBC. Uh, I, I shouldn't even see it, say in the IBC world, in the world of social media who think that everything is about short term velocity of money or flowing of mm -hmm. money. And they're discounting that. Well, if a, if a, if a true business is not thinking they're going to get a return in seven years, then why, or a banking system, a true bank doesn't in seven years, why do you think you're so arrogant that you are better than those and you can get a rate of return right away by borrowing against and going out and doing something else? 
Mm-hmm. And I've said this, I've said this before, you can do that. That is, but to me, that is the exception to the rule. Yes. Why do I believe that? I have ex- 30 years plus of experience in this. Nelson had 60 plus years of experience in that. We see the human condition. We see what people do not follow through with. If you want to do things that are not common, you have to be willing to do things in an uncommon way. So if you want to continue to use the banking system to finance things, be undisciplined, want it now kind of situation, go use the bank. You're going to be doing the common thing, like Nelson said, 90% of the people are doing that. If you want uncommon results, then you have to do things in an uncommon way. So you have to be willing to capitalize your banking system. Now, Nelson does say seven years. Do you have to wait the entire seven years? It depends on how aggressive you want to get. And it also depends how much you want to use your banking system early. My example would be, you know, I have a client that's put $100,000 in for a couple of years. And that $100,000 can easily pay for his new car of $50,000. So he doesn't have to wait for the entire seven years. What Nelson was doing was capitalizing only what a normal car payment would be. Mm-hmm. You can overcapitalize so that you could get to an easy, normal car payment in just a couple of years. Well, or for but instance, you have, but, I you, mean, but you have to yeah. overcapitalize. I mean, if you're in the position of saying, well, I have cash flow and I'm storing it somewhere and I want to put $100,000 into a policy every year, well, you're not going to have to wait seven years to be able to buy a car from that. So it just depends on the the proportion or the ratio of how much you're putting into the policy versus what the type of expense is. You don't have to wait seven years to take a loan. We're not suggesting that in any way. The point that we're making is if you're only looking at the cost of that particular item exactly. and you're financing a policy or you're, sorry, you're, you're putting premium into a policy based on that expense only, that's why you're going to end up having to wait longer. Bruce, we've got a lot of comments. I don't know if you want to jump in here. And then there's one on LinkedIn I can share as well. Do the LinkedIn one first. Okay. So we've got Joe DeFazio on LinkedIn. Thank you, Joe, for jumping in here. And we've got a bunch. Okay. So instead of keeping the numbers of cars static, if you want to keep the payment from method B, debt financing static. Oh, if you were to keep the payment from method B, debt financing static, then method C, if cash financing would enable the person to buy more cars, Nelson, that brilliant man, was downplaying the power of capitalizing first. The only benefit, yes, he was. The only benefit of debt financing is early use of the car. It only gets better with methods D and E. So basically, if you're just looking at the first three that we've talked about so far, you'll not be able to conceptualize how it could be any better uh, than what we just talked about paying cash for a car. But we're going to talk about a method that is astronomically better. Um, So thank you, Joe, for sharing that. Yeah, Joe has been listening for a while. He's a friend of the show, and he he can he can actually look at things um, at both the numbers. He's a very accomplished spreadsheet guy, and he looks at the numbers, but he also understands the concepts. All right, so uh, JJ uh, on YouTube has brought out a very good point, uh, similar to the one I talked about earlier. He says, if you haven't watched Nelson's 10-hour seminar, that's the two-day seminar that I was talking about. It would magnify your understanding of IBC. You can purchase this from the Nelson Nash Institute. And I think you can actually get snippets 
I can announce this right now that the Nelson Nash Institute has a new YouTube channel with um, uh, IBC concepts within the YouTube channel that are um, videos of Nelson, David, Carlos Lara on the board, and Bob Murphy, who used to be on the bar board, a Austrian economist. And the name and of the YouTube you, channel is IBC Concepts. Um, it was it's brand new, so I okay. I don't know. I'll look it up before the end, and we'll and okay. we'll we'll get there. And then uh, JJ also says, "Would you think it is a in order of the people?" What? Excuse me, JJ. I'm uh, my eyes are not that good. Would you think it's the order of the way people think about this that gets the gets in the way of people thinking about capitalization and saving as a base. Yes, I think that's what Joe DeFazio was just saying then. It's the order that you have to rethink your thinking, JJ. That's what I was talking about earlier. <clears throat> in our society, uh, that's just the way you purchase a car. Oh, you go to the car dealer and you find out what monthly payment you can afford. Matter of fact, they don't even talk about in most cases, they don't even talk about what the car price is. They talk to you about what payment can you afford. And that's a great that's, lead into the next piece on the CD financing too. Yeah. And then the so, other thing is, ahead, is uh, people seem to have trouble with order of operations. JJ, I, I'll tell you right now, I have problems with order of operations too. I mean, I, I don't think I'm a math neophyte, but <clears throat> when it comes to a lot of things in math, order of operations is <clears throat> something that I really struggle with and I have to think. I'm not conscious, unconsciously competent in that area. Uh, I would say I'm not either. Bruce, can I just lay out real quick what the CD method is? I know we're getting close Absolutely. to the end of the show and I wanted to see if we can cover both of these today. So, so when he starts talking about these two last methods, first is a CD method, then is infinite banking. So first we'll talk about the CD method. He says, let's go ahead and accumulate cash over that seven-year period. and First, he compliments somebody who thinks about capitalization by saying, well, you've conquered Parkinson's law. And if you have, that alone is going to set you up for success. So the idea of being willing to capitalize, which means being willing to store capital somewhere before borrowing against it or before using that capital like a banking system, that you're creating an entity that's going to allow you to reap greater rewards in the future. So now what he does is he says, okay, let's go ahead and store this in the bank. And again, this number is not going to make sense in today's environment, but this is a 5.5 interest growth on your um, CD. Um, and then what's going to happen is he said, well, then that's going to put you in a tax bracket. Let's say you're going to be paying 30% taxes. That is now a net 4% return after tax. So you're storing your cash in a CD and that is now taxable growth. It has to be listed on your tax return. And after tax, your benefit that you experience is a 4% return. What's going to happen there is you're putting in $5,000 per year. This was the idea about being willing to capitalize. You don't need to put that much money in to be able to buy the car. But he said, we're going to put in a larger sum of money to begin with. We're going to put $5,000 in every year for seven years because we value storing capital and capitalizing. Then at the end of seven years, with that 4% return that you're realizing, you will have $41,071.13. Now, he said that is, he also mentions that because you're storing cash and you're valuing capitalization and you've conquered Parkinson's law, now you're attracting the Willie Sutton types, those who that want to steal what others have built, which is why the IRS then is going to go ahead and tax that because you're now not just using up cash, you are building cash. 
So then he said, if you go into the, the car dealership and you tell them how much cash you have available, they're going to say, oh, why do you want to buy this low cost car? We're going to attract, we're going to sell you a BMW or a Mercedes or something that's much greater than you were intending to spend. And so now you have another opportunity to defer gratification and value your banking system more than the new expense that you're going to be paying for and still stay committed to that lower price point of a vehicle because that's what you were doing all along. So that's, again, not changing anything with the apples to apples comparison. So then he says, you're going to fund uh, Oh, sorry. So once you have this cash, you're about $41,000. I'm estimating that there's a little bit more than that. Then you're going to withdraw the $10,550. you are going to purchase the car. He says, we're going to withdraw. I want to be really clear about that. He's taking the money out of the CD. He's not borrowing against it. He's just taking the money out of the CD. And then you're going to start funding monthly savings again, and you're going to pay back more than the required amount. The reason is that you're basically paying interest. And Bruce, you can jump in and um, add clarification right. on this. But basically, you are going to um, fund back at monthly savings. And I can't remember the amount because I'm looking at my notes instead of what he shared. And then you're going to withdraw $3,030 to purchase a new CD at interest each year. Do you want to explain that further, Bruce? Well, there's a couple parts here. He's saying, you know, um, you're you have a net interest that you have, so you're losing some of that there. And then also, as you if you withdrew the CD to actually pay for the car, you're now not making the money on the CD. So he's saying that you should pay back extra, which would have been like you made the interest on the CD yourself. That makes so sense. That, okay. Yeah, that's what he means there. Okay. So well, I, go, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, no, then go he ahead. walks this all the way out to the 44th year. And now instead of having a cost, you are in a position of having a sum in your CD or in this account. And it is the balance at the end is $187,228.76. That's in your CD. Plus, you have the trade-in value of the car. So remember, in every in every situation here, in all four of all the five examples, only leasing does not allow you to have a trade-in value of the car at the end. So we're in not leasing, not debt financing, not cash financing. Now we're in the CD financing method. And in all of those last four methods, we all have a trade-in value. But instead of having a cost and being negative net worth, we're in a position of having 187228 in the CD at the end. So we're tremendously further ahead because we value capitalization and we're earning interest in the CD all along the, the lifetime of this example. And so that was the two things that benefit the person using this financing method of putting money in a higher interest account. So it's much higher than you're going to earn in a bank. And you're also in a position of capitalizing first and then continuing to earn that interest along the way. Yeah, and the YouTube channel is the Nelson Nash Institute. Um, that is that is the title of it. Okay, so then JJ, before we go to the last one, um, he does say that the um, Nelson Nash Institute just posted a video from several days ago. I think it, this is the channel. The NNI will be posting messages from Nelson. Yeah, JJ, I just I just confirmed that. Um, and then Fritz, uh, he's just confirming that also. Yeah, the Nelson Nash Institute. It's a, a brand new revamped channel. That's why I wasn't sure exactly what the uh, 
the name of it was. So the Nelson Nash Institute. Okay, Rachel, you want to start with the, the last method and we'll wrap up the show? Yes. So then he takes the example of the CD method and uses infinite banking to do the same thing. But there's a tremendous additional benefit to using infinite banking. So like the CD method, you're putting your cash into something. In the CD method, you're putting it into a CD. In the IBC example, you're putting it into a dividend-paying life insurance policy. And he uses an actual illustration with actual returns, which we're not using that exact policy. And he doesn't say what the dividend rate is or the interest rate. But what he says is, again, apples to apples, we're putting in 5000 per year. We're capitalizing for four years. And then what he's doing, we're not talking about any policy loans. He explains this later. He says, you don't even have to consider the idea of using loans. Sometimes that's a huge um, visceral negative reaction. That's very emotional for people when you say taking a loan against your policy, because they think, well, then I'm going to be in debt. I don't want to be in debt. I don't like the idea of debt or loans or all of that in their mind takes them into a bad place. And even though policy loans can be really good. He saves that until the end, again, very wise. And he says, let's withdraw dividends to pay cash for the car. So we're not taking policy loans. You're storing up 5,000 in over seven years and then withdrawing the cash to pay for the car. Then he said, you're being the honest banker. You're paying premiums to your policy of 3,030 per year. Let's just look at, um, and I did not do the math on this before. If you took the 10,550, 10,550 divided by four years, you'd be putting in 2,637 per year, but I think I, I know what he did. 260 times 12. I think that's where it came from. 31, 20. We're in a, a really similar situation here where he basically took the monthly payment that you were paying in the debt financing example. And that's the amount monthly that he's just talking about an annual amount now, 3,030 going back into the banking system. What he said here is you're getting better results through year 14. And then you're accelerating the favorability of the IBC method. Um, The point here is that you both in the last two examples have to capitalize first, and then you're being able to use your capital. If you look at the infinite banking example compared to the CD method in the beginning, the CD method seems to have been a better idea because you're not losing so much due to the lack of liquidity in the early years. But when you look at the long term, this is the tremendous advantage. In year 44, on the infinite banking side, I need to go back to the book here. I have too many windows up here. In year 44, Using infinite banking rather than having $187,000, you have five. Am I saying the right? 551,000. Yep. 593. And the difference is that you did not just earn interest, you also earned dividends. And because those dividends were paid to you as the policy owner, you had more capital going in, which was accelerating your uninterrupted compounding, which in this case, I shouldn't say uninterrupted. He is interrupting the compounding in order to withdraw cash from the IDC method. Bruce, I'll let you pick up from here. I'm just going to mute for a second. Yeah, no problem. And then also the um, on the CD method, you had to pay taxes on this. So that was another uh, drag on this particular accumulation of wealth. 
And he says there's a simple explanation for this uh, effect. Hardly anybody takes in consideration that the banker, Method D, that issues a CD went through the long and costly process of getting a bank charter and winning the deposits of customers. That is the same thing that you should be thinking of when you're capitalizing your policy. I already mentioned this with my friend who started a bank. He says, every time a person buys a life insurance policy, he is starting a business. I have said this on multiple occasions. The life insurance company is nothing more than administrator of the policy owner purchase. Uh, purchase. And so I think if you really can rethink your thinking and say, um, this is a way of life, okay? It's not just a one-time, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to do this one time and then I'm going to have my system set up and I don't have to worry about it again. This is this is a long-term way of thinking. Now, some people may not be able to wrap their hands or arms around this and they say, well, well wait a minute, the CD method works better up to year uh, 14. So why don't I just do the CD method? Well, you could, except that's not long, long-term thinking. And you also don't get the other ancillary benefits which would be a death benefit, uh, well-being rider, a chronic illness rider. You um, you were also paying taxes on the CD. I know this numbers are net of taxes, but we don't know where taxes are going to go in the future. So that would be another uh, uh, situation where you may be able to capitalize even faster. Okay. The, um, Bruce, one thing I wanted to point out here, and I know where you you've got to go, and we're at the top of the hour. What is really valuable here is that he walks it out even further to that year 51 um, of the CD versus the IBC example. In the CD example, you've got basically $250,000. In the IBC example, at this point, now your growth has tremendously increased and you are in the position of having $964,000. The difference is dividends. Then he says, if you want to use this, he says he's banned the word retirement from his vocabulary, which we basically have as well. But you have the opportunity for taking income in the later years. And because the infinite banking policy continues to pay dividends, you could take an income stream from this particular policy example. Not every policy works out exactly the same. But in this case, he's taking an income stream. And because the dividends that are being paid into the policy are higher than what he's taking out, the policy is continuing to grow. So you're not using up the ability to use that income stream. And then the death benefit is just an added benefit on the side. Then he goes into the value of saying, if we, instead of withdrawing, use policy loans, it's even more advantageous. But you need to see the numbers first to realize that even if we just withdraw out of the policy. It's tremendously valuable to be able to build up this additional cash because you're being the banker. We say that so frequently that sometimes what's behind it is lost. Being the banker means you're capitalizing, you're valuing the capitalization, and you're earning the reward of ownership, which is dividends. And that is really what makes this perform tremendously more valuably in the long term in your life. So Bruce, yeah, I think I'd like we need to, to just, wrap right here, don't we? Yeah, I'd like to just wrap this up by saying he reviews again about the uh, characters of a Shakespearean play. Because when it comes to the subject of finance, frankly, most folks don't understand the play. He doesn't understand who's playing each ro uh, role. Worse than that, they can't get the characters in the play straight. And I think a couple of things I highlighted here, <clears throat> a bank cannot operate without hired help. 
neither can a life insurance company. And yet I hear this all the time. Oh, well, there's a lot of fees in a life insurance policy. Well, that's because they have hired help. Banks have hired help too. They don't, they charge you fees now, statement fees, they charge you, and, and an interest on a product is a fee. Okay. That's all it is. So you, that's what he's saying. People don't understand the players of the play, the characters of the play. The life, the life policy owner gets both interest and guaranteed cash value and dividends. You made that point. But what I would like to make the point of is once you make start making dividends, which is not guaranteed, but it's highly probable at the end of the first year. When I say highly probable, the companies we use have uninterrupted dividends for over 120 years. Mm-hmm. You then start getting dividends on your dividends. Yes. Okay. So that really accelerates the process of the compounding. So that's where I'd like for me personally to end the day. I think it's, uh, it's once again, I hope I was emphasizing the fact that you need to think like a business. Yes. Not just concentrate on the interest rates because that will actually set you free from the, from the, the actual details and think about it more in a conceptual manner. You know, and if you think like a business, you value long-term growth and you value doing things in the early years that might feel like a, like not the best decision. It might not be the most advantageous to turn around cash tomorrow. But again, Bruce, you said the norm is to have this um, a longer period of time to capitalize. Yes, you could start a business and maybe it's overnight successful and you sell it for a tremendously higher value than what you put into it. That can happen. It's not that it can't. It's just not the norm. And it's also not the norm for a life insurance policy. So I'll wrap with um, Nelson's two rules that he said at the very end of this chapter. He said, to make this work, one, don't be afraid to capitalize. The more you put in, the more you get back tax-free or tax-free income in the later years. He said, the more you are able to use, however you choose to use it, it might not be tax-free income in the later years, but however you choose to use it, the more you're going to have. And that is why it is a valuable method for building wealth. When people say life insurance is not a good place to build wealth, it's because they don't understand that you need to capitalize. And then you need to Take your policy loans, but don't make them without making provisions for repaying them. That's what he said earlier in an earlier chapter that was, don't steal the peas. And so if you can do those two things, if you can think like a business that capitalizes in the early years, you will reap the rewards of being that business owner by earning those dividends that will will tremendously and astronomically outperform any other method of financing, which is a tremendous wealth builder. With that, we are going to close here today. If you're interested in talking about these concepts more fully about how to apply them in your own financial life, you can book a call with our advisors, go over to themoneyadvantage.com and we'd be happy to have that conversation with you and find out if we're a good fit in serving you to meet your financial goals. And then as we close today, please go ahead and like, rate, review the podcast uh, wherever you're listening today. Give us a thumbs up on whatever platform you're on, share it with your friends. And in closing, please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. 
We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.